I'd like to welcome you to the Classical Immigration Law Partners annual uh, H-1B cap filing update webinar. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we will be coming, covering the upcoming H-1B cap filing season. We will be getting started in just a moment. Uh, a couple of preliminary technical details. We're putting up this slide to help those of you uh, figure out your audio and uh, question options as uh, people continue to log in here. A recording of this webinar is going to become available. It will be sent to everyone who's registered for today. It will also be available on our website and will be published as a bonus episode of our podcast, Statutes of Liberty. Uh, so that Statutes of Liberty podcast uh, is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other uh, podcast uh, venues. So you're welcome to subscribe to that if you have interest. Uh, our speakers today, I'm Bill Stock, uh, one of the partners here at Classical Immigration Partners. I'm joined by Elise Falkowski and Michelle Madera, my partners. And we work with a lot of employers, large and small, uh, on H-1B and many other employment type uh, visas. And we're here to uh, help you think through the cap filing season and some news this year with regard uh, to the H-1B cap filing. Uh, we have a new electronic registration system that we're going to talk about today. So let's get started. I do see that we have a couple of people putting questions, by the way, into the question box. Uh, there is no audio portion of this uh, for Q&A, but we can take your questions uh, through the question box or through the chat box uh, on the control panel that's right there uh, on the right-hand side of your screen. Uh, glad that a couple of people have found that. Please feel free to continue to do that as we go through. If we don't get to your question during the presentation, we will have 15 minutes at the end, uh, and we'll try to get through all of those questions. So uh, let's get started. Uh, first off, uh, even with changes coming, uh, Michelle, why don't you talk us through some of the things that are going to stay the same in this year's CAP? Sure. Thank you, Bill. Um, so there are some things that are staying the same. Um, so hopefully that eases some of the stress of this process. But Elise will be talking about all the changes that are coming up very soon. So the first thing we always need to do is identify the people early. Um, so whoever you as the employer would like to be sponsoring for an H-1B for the first time, we need to know those people really early on this year. Um, while we are saying it's staying the same, I would say it's even a little bit earlier, so it's changing slightly. So um, Elise is going to talk about the new deadlines um, shortly, but you know, quickly um, identifying the people in the next few weeks is going to be the most important. So who should you be looking at? You should be looking at any students, any foreign students you'd want to um, sponsor, so F1s who maybe came on as interns or co-ops um, or who are on their OPT or STEM OPT, um, who you're thinking about. Anybody on an H4 or maybe even an L2 EAD um, is, is another one that you should be thinking about. But we're going to talk through all of that in a lot more detail later, but just start thinking about who you need to identify. Um, the next thing that's staying the same are the numbers. So um, as you know, it goes into a lottery process with 65,000 H-1Bs available for anybody, um, whether they have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, with an additional 20,000 for people who have a master's degree from a U.S. university. Um, so the total will still be 85,000. The change that was made last cap season will um, stay in place for this year, which means that they will actually collect all of the cap cases um, and conduct the lottery 
for everybody first. So the bachelor's lottery will be first, and then they will conduct the master's lottery based off of um, uh, those who are left who have U.S. master's degrees. So if you do have a U.S. master's degree or your employee has a U.S. master's degree, you have uh, better odds of getting into the H-1B um, program this year. Um, other things that are staying the same that, you know, we've been talking about for honestly a few years now is um, there's no regulation right now to stop the H-4 EAD um, and to end that program. It was um, initiated, uh, the plan is for that to come out maybe in March 2020, the proposal to, for the regulation, but right now it's business as usual for the H-4 EADs. Again, the same with the specialty occupation. There's currently um, no change to that definition, but there is a proposal. Um, it is on the agenda to, to change the definition of specialty occupation. They were supposed to put that out in December 2019, and they haven't done it yet. So um, there's really no timeline for that as far as we know. What we expect to see with that change, though, is a stricter interpretation of what a specialty occupation is, very similar to what we've been seeing in all those requests for evidence that we've, we've all been getting lately. Um, and then finally, the other regulation that has not yet been written but may be coming out is an employer-employee um, uh, change to that definition. And that's really going to make a, be a tighter interpretation um, in order to impact um, third-party contractors. So those are all things we're on the lookout for, but right now, um, you know, none of those changes have taken place. But there are other changes that have taken place. So, um, Elise, why don't you talk to us a little bit about um, what's going on there? Sure. So we have a new regulation. A new regulation was issued January 9th. 2020, establishing a new pre-registration process for the lottery. So in the past, as Michelle stated, we would file our applications um, April 1st through April 5th, and the lottery would be conducted based upon those applications. Um, it, just to level set, uh, Michelle talked about the totals, right? 65,000 general plus 20,000 reserved for a U.S. master's degree or higher. Last year, the government received over 201,000 uh, submissions for um, the lottery. So the process now is different. It will be a pre-registration through my USCIS. It's completely electronic, and the government has said it will not allow any options for a paper uh, submission under the pre-registration. Um, unlike a full filing requiring the full filing fees, there will be a $10 fee for each beneficiary. That $10 fee must be paid through the pay.gov portal. And uh, as Michelle alluded to, we have earlier timing deadlines. That pre-registration process and timing will go from March 1st through March 20th. And the government has said that it will run through the lottery all registrations received through that period. Um, so what are some implications now of this pre-registration process? and whether or not the system, in fact, will work. And unfortunately, historically, 
the government has not done well launching electronic systems. Um, I actually found an excellent Harvard Business School article talking about some uh, rollouts for uh, federal electronic systems. One example is healthcare.gov. So the reg was um, a 2010 rule, and they launched October 2013. Um, problems with the website happened immediately. Because of high website demand, um, over 250,000, the website went down within two hours. There were also huge problems with the functional design of the website. So a total of six users completed the applications on the first day, and the website remained down. Um, there is a great summary as well um, in the analysis by Harvard Business School of Electronic Systems, um, and basically saying that the healthcare.gov example is not unique. Research has shown that over the past 10 years, 94% of large federal information technology projects were unsuccessful, and more than 50% were delayed over budget or didn't meet expectations, or even judged to be complete failures. And immigration portals have the same issue. In fact, uh, the um, Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General recommended that USCIS halt the use of the Ellis system for naturalization applications due to audits that discovered huge functionality uh, considerations and problems. So what we're looking at here potentially is a system that's being rolled out from March 1st to March 20th that may in fact not work. One of our other concerns is that um, the $10 fee may result in a much, much higher number of filings even than last year in terms of the 201,000 submitted. So the question is whether or not the system in fact will crash. I find it very interesting as well. When you look at the uh, slides that the government released for the H-1B registration, um, the first paragraph talking about the process um, basically says that U.S. employers and agents will use this registration process during the designated period, quote, unless the registration requirement is suspended by USCIS. So there is a potential that this registration requirement may be suspended by USCIS. One of the key concerns is if this registration is suspended by USCIS, um, the likelihood is that the government may in fact require, consistent with regulations, that all employers submit full petitions on April 1. Um, so based upon all of this background, Bill, um, what does everyone need to think about and do now? Obviously, we're in what may be a transition year uh, going forward once we've established that the system has the functionality that the government hopes it has. Uh, I don't anticipate that we'll necessarily need to be planning for both eventualities. Uh, however, I think this year, it is a transition year. And so we have to be thinking about uh, being prepared not only for 
the new registration-based filing, but also for the possibility that we would have to do a paper filing of every petition in order to participate in the lottery. Well, so the first thing you want to do is let's be ready for the uh, electronic registration system. There will be a requirement to register uh, a, an account on behalf of the employer. Uh, for those of you who are represented by us, uh, uh, we will be able to set up that account on your behalf. Uh, there will be a permissioning uh, 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 process we anticipate uh, where you would grant access to the company account uh, to us, but uh, we do expect to be able to submit on your behalf, much as we do with the electronic LCA system um, or the electronic PERM system. Uh, but there will be a need to, uh, to have a, a company registration. Uh, we'll also need to uh, make arrangements to pay the fee. Uh, the pay.gov website uh, uh, allows for credit card payments. Uh, it also allows for uh, uh, ACH transfers, direct transfers from people's checking accounts. Uh, again, on behalf of, uh, of our law firm, we'll simply pay uh, on behalf of all the registrations uh, that we file. Um, so then we have to think about in this in this new world, how are we going to prepare before the registration period? Uh, and I think it's important to understand that uh, while it, it is not going to be required to get an LCA, uh, we are certainly going to suggest uh, filing of LCAs on behalf of all petitions that are going to be registered. Uh, the first reason for that is that uh, even under the registration uh, uh, sort of model, there is this 90-day period after the registration. I think it behooves us, we'll, we'll have done all of the analysis of the job category, the prevailing wage, et cetera. Uh, we may as well just uh, sort of finish that step of the process and have the LCA already completed uh, at the time uh, that we're being ready to register. In addition, if there is a very short window between a system crash and the government saying that they will have to accept paper filings and they're going to keep April 1st as the deadline, uh, you know, in that scenario, uh, there will be a rush on the LCA system. Uh, that system may have capacity issues. So we believe that, uh, and also, of course, it's seven days to get an LCA out of that system. So we, uh, we recommend having LCAs already completed on behalf of every uh, prospective H-1B petition. Those LCAs can be withdrawn, and uh, if they didn't have H-1B uh, as employed under them, they don't have any obligation to the employer except to sort of keep a record of it for a year. Um, so we think there's not a big cost to, uh, to having uh, done that on behalf of the employer. The second thing that uh, you're going to want to do before the registration period starts is really a complete analysis of the employee's H-1B eligibility, uh, of any anticipated issues with the case, and of course of any uh, uh, other immigration issues. Uh, so for example, uh, we want to go through uh, and we want to find out what will the prevailing wage be so that the employer can make a decision. If I get this H-1B in the registration, am I going to have to offer a salary that's uh, higher than I want to pay? And maybe I'll be able to find another worker at a salary that's lower than that. And uh, so I won't go through the H-1B registration process. Um, there may be uh, you know, immigration-related issues. So the principal things that we're thinking about are 
uh, the cap gap employment authorization. What is the employee's status going to be um, as of April 1st? Do they have their optional practical training? If that is expiring during the month of April, is that going to mean that if the person is selected in the lottery, they actually have to have their H-1B petition filed in April? Uh, so even though there's a 90-day uh, time, you know, the, that particular person might need to have their application filed sooner than 90 days. Um, and of course, I, I think it's very important to uh, just make sure that we think the person does qualify for H-1B status. Their educational documentation is in order. We've correctly selected which of the two CAPs that they're going to be submitted under, whether it's the U.S. Master's CAP or the other, the base cap. Um, we've, we've looked at what the person's educational credentials are, what the job being offered them is, uh, whether there have been particular problems in that H-1B category in the past, and we'll go through some of those uh, specifics uh, in just a minute. But a full analysis, the same as we would uh, whether we were going to file in the lottery uh, or whether we're going to electronically register, is still going to need to be done for every prospective H-1B worker um, as we go through that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as we mentioned, having a, a full petition ready to go in case of a system failure, uh, that would, you know, if, if the government, uh, even if the, in the best case scenario, the government will say that a system failure, uh, you know, in, in the first week of the registration period means that they're going to go back to paper filing, we would have three weeks to prepare every single filing uh, that, that an employer wanted to file. Um, so we think uh, being prepared in our sort of normal timing of you know, beginning to prepare these in early February is really the best practice in this transition year, uh, given what Elise said about the likelihood of uh, system failures affecting the case. So uh, that's kind of our big thought in terms of uh, how to handle the, the registration process. Uh, let's take a look at some of the H-1B issues that affect all of our cases, whether they are new filings or whether they are uh, H-transfers, uh, and uh, uh, just talks through some of those. So, uh, Michelle, I know that uh, for a long time uh, now, two years, we've been dealing with uh, specialty occupation questions. Help us understand that. Sure, sure, and I'm sure a lot of people on this call have heard us talk about this plenty of times, but let's just talk through a little bit what we, what we expect to see with specialty occupation issues. So this is a general issue that we see across the board. It's not specific to CAP cases, um, but we, you know, with an influx of filing of CAP cases that would happen um, sometime after April 1st, um, you know, we expect there to be uh, the same amount of scrutiny, if not a little bit more, on these specialty occupations, like you do see for all your other H-1Bs, change of employers or extensions and such. What that means is that, you know, for an H-1B, we have to show that the job in itself is complex enough in, in its duties to require at least a bachelor's degree in a specific field of study that's related to what the person is doing. Um, and, and where we see a lot of pushback is really just questioning that. And so we have to go through all the prongs. Um, there are four to show to the government that, you know, the job is that complex, and, and these are the degrees required, and this is why that degree is required, right? This is why, you know, a software developer would need a degree in computer science. This is why um, those, those types of things are, are necessary in order to perform the job successfully. And so that's something we do expect um, to see um, coming up again this year in this CAP season. There's been no slowdown there. 
Um, another another um, issue that we did touch upon quite a bit with the prevailing wage analysis is selecting the LCA category. So with every labor condition application that gets filed with the H-1B, we have to select a category that dictates the prevailing wage. And those are a limited bucket of occupations dictated by the Department of Labor. And as you can imagine, that bucket does not is not as specific as um, you know all the jobs out there are. So oftentimes we have to kind of figure out which job which job bucket is best for the more specific role that um, we are filling. And then we also need to then look at what the Department of Labor says about that job bucket to make sure that they norm they would say that a bachelor's degree or higher would normally be required um, and, and things like that because we don't want to get into a situation where the job bucket says, well, you don't need a bachelor's degree, you need an associate's or a high school diploma to do that job. And so that's an analysis that we're always doing on our end to make sure that we are selecting the best category. Um, and something I'm going to talk about um, later, but you know, the, speci the specifics of the job description are really important in order for us to make sure we're choosing the best job category. And often we lean on you know, the employers and the managers to help us with that um, because they're the experts in that role. Michelle, what if um, the LTA category is not clear? Do you have any tips and things that we may do in advance if the LCA category is not very clear? Um, yes, so um, often we'll look at two different categories um, or, or more, and, and so often I will even go back to the employer and say, you know, here's a description of the one category, here's a description of the other category, you know, which one best fits what you're saying? And this actually came up very recently for me. Um, with a new job I hadn't um, really worked on before, it was a it was an engineer that focuses on underwater research, and so there's like an ocean engineer position, and then there's um, a, a few other different engineering positions related to um, underwater research, and and I wasn't very familiar with which one would fit, and actually um, it was very helpful that the employer walked us through that because then we could also pull additional description into the job description um, of the H-1B so we can actually really flush out what the person is doing because um, a lot of times job descriptions are a little bit general. Um, so that's, that's always a helpful way to look at that. Yeah, and I think it really is critical to work closely with the employer to get that information. And one thing that we've always done too to be proactive just in case if we think USCIS may think another category doesn't apply, we actually may submit more than one LCA because if that RFE comes, um, they're going to require a relevant labor condition application filed before the filing. So there's a lot of things that we're going to be looking at as we're preparing the cases. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, oh, Are there any specific kinds of occupations that we're seeing problems with? Yes, of course, always. Um, so, you know, I'm... If you've joined us on this um, webinar in prior years, you've always heard us talk about the marketing positions. Those are sort of our problem child positions um, that while we love them, the government always questions them. Um, so the issue that comes up with any marketing position, marketing research analyst, marketing development, all those types of things, is that you could have a wide range of bachelor's degrees um, that qualify you to do that job. Um, so you might accept a job in you know, economics or research or finance or marketing um, in order to accept a marketing role. And so the government often questions if a bachelor's degree um, in a specific field is really necessary for a marketing position or if you could just have any old bachelor's degree. Um, another problem occupation we see is um, data scientists. 
Um, again, the government just generally questions the specialty occupation nature of those roles and also the degrees required because, again, you might have a wide variety of degrees that would be acceptable for that. And that does seem to be a hot button issue um, when it's not such, so easily aligned why, you know, um, like a software developer engineer might need a degree in, in information technology, but a data scientist, you might have a wider variety of degrees that you would accept because they're doing um, lots of different things. So one of the things we're always looking for when we're preparing these cases and analyzing them is to see, you know, um, is there a specific subfunction or, or a reason that this person has this degree and we can draw that into both of the job description and our explanation of the degree. Um, all right, so then there are, um, I think, some other issues that we need to be looking out for um, uh, as well regarding off-site work and such. Yeah, Elise, uh, sometimes uh, we have seen increased scrutiny being given about the kind and location of the work. Uh, talk us through some of the things that we need to make sure are correctly provided to us by employers with respect to those uh, questions. Right. So. It, the government is looking much more closely at the location of employment, and under the H-1B and uh, Simeo Solutions decision, H-1Bs are very location-specific. If there's any change in location, we would need to amend, but even in advance, what we like to do to avoid amendments is to try to list all possible locations for the position in advance and have LCAs that cover all of those locations in advance. When we do that, however, so for example, a good example I think are some of our physical therapist cases, right? Um, employers need a lot of flexibility often for positions like that where they may be assigned to more than one gym or more than one hospital to meet needs. Um, we often get questions from USCIS related to an itinerary for them or when they will be at the particular location. So we're going to want to get as much information as possible up front about various locations. A new hot button issue, particularly when we see site visits by fraud detection and national security now, is whether or not the person is also allowed to work remotely. That is often a, a standard question now in FDNS site visits. Um, so we are asking more and more, particularly as employers really are allowing remote work more, um, we're asking that question and we want that in the applications up front. We actually recently had an FDNS site visit where the officer was adamant that the person, he had to go to the person's home office and ask questions about postings and the like. Um, we also see issues with itineraries. If there is an itinerary, um, we, they often want details. It may raise the question as to whether or not there's a valid employer-employee relationship as well, and we may want to get additional data there. There's also some concerns about travel as well um, that we're going to look at in advance, particularly if there's a change of status application filed, um, for a change of status for an F1 to an H1B and interim travel. We want to look at that for all F1s. There's some other key issues we want to look at now for F1s that are really hot button topics. Um, one is the underlying schools. 
there are some schools that have been viewed as CPT or curricular practical training mills, so to speak, that may issue CPT um, more broadly than the, the government would like. Uh, the government has also even set up um, schools that um, were allegedly offering CPT, um, like UNJ and the Farmington. Um, where they have actually done fraud investigations and followed up with students. So something that the government is looking at very closely is whether or not any curricular practical training is in fact valid and meets the requirements such that it is in fact valid curricular practical training related to a course of study and integral and essential to the degree program. Another thing that they're looking at for students is whether or not um, they have exceeded the allotted practical training. Uh, there's a very common request for evidence that we've seen um, regarding multiple years of practical training at the same education level where the government confounds curricular practical training and optional practical training. Um, we, so far, have been very successful fighting those, um, citing the regulations um, as well as the government's own guidance to designated school officials um, that provide that you may, in fact, have more than one year of curricular practical training and that you still can get curricular practical training and optional practical training as long as you don't have one full year of curricular practical training. We're also looking at maintenance of status issues for students in the wake of the 2018 unlawful presence memo. Uh, luckily, um, due to the efforts of AILA and many uh, key attorneys, including our partner Ron Clasco, has been enjoined. But we often see USCIS looking at key maintenance of status issues for students. So we look at that very closely upon filing. And we may decide for certain students to file via comfort processing versus requesting a change of status. So, sorry. Yeah, so let's go uh, now to, to looking at uh, some important considerations uh, this year in identifying potential 2020 CAP filings. Uh, and so we want to go through the concept here is we need to identify uh, and prepare cases as early as possible in the person's stay and we need to be considering people who may need uh, additional time uh, in the US than their current visa uh, provides because they may not be able to extend the current visa that they're on. Uh, you want to also consider the fact that you need to be able to make multiple filings for the person. And it's very important to understand that you cannot make multiple filings for the same person in the same year. What we mean here is that you have to be thinking about a fact that uh, an F1 uh, who is not in a STEM field will usually have two or uh, sometimes only one opportunity to file in the H1B lottery. A student who has the STEM OPT extension of two years beyond the first year uh, the employer might think, well, uh, they have three years, I'll just apply for them in year number three. Um, 
because it's a lottery every year, you have to think about the fact that you may need three chances to get a person uh, selected in the lottery. And in fact, uh, they might not get selected uh, in the lottery. Uh, a person with a US master's degree in past years, it was a 50% chance of success. And you know, it's not that hard to flip a coin three times uh, and have it come up heads all three times. So uh, uh, just be aware that uh, giving yourself the opportunity to make multiple filings on behalf of every employer, employee who, who needs it um, is uh, is going to be critical. So the groups of people who you want to be taking a look at your foreign national population and thinking whether an H-1B might be necessary, number one, obviously, is the students on OPT. Number two, and new on this list this year, is L-1A and L-1B employers. Uh, previously, we had highlighted L-1B employees, and particularly L-1B employees from countries like India and China. Now we've looked at how the priority date system is moving in the employment-based green card process. There are very real possibilities that everyone in the world will have a backlog in the employment-based second and third preference. There are already worldwide backlogs in the employment-based first preference. What that means is L1As, who normally would be in the first preference through something called a multinational manager petition, uh, need to consider whether or not an H-1B might be necessary due to the length of time that it will take to get them an L1, uh, to get their L1A converted into a multinational manager uh, green card. Similarly, L1B employees only have five years in the United States, and even if we have started the green card process for them, there is no extension of that L1B. So they would need to be in an H-1B status in order to have their uh, status be able to be extended just because the employer has started the green card process for them. So seriously looking at L1A and L1B employees um, is definitely something you want to be doing and putting them on the list for this cap. Uh, TN employees, particularly TN employees who might be interested in adjusting status to green card, it's not absolutely necessary, uh, but if the TN employee was born in a country other than Canada, uh, China and India specifically, they may face a period of time in TN status uh, that is, uh, they would have an I-140 filed for them and they would be stuck in the green card backlog. In that scenario, it's much better for them to be on an H-1B than to be trying to renew their TN. Other TNs, you know, the good news is uh, that the uh, wonderful trade agreement of the Mexico-US-Canada trade agreement uh, has been uh, signed and is likely to be approved by uh, the legislatures in all three countries. And the very good news is that they did not change any of the rules about which jobs are in the TN. So they didn't make it any better, but they didn't make it any worse. In prior years, we had some serious doubts that the TN category would continue to exist. Good news there, you don't necessarily have to consider every TN as needing an H-1B. Another group, of course, is overseas employees. There may be employees who you're looking to send to the United States. L-1Bs can be very difficult to obtain these days. H-1Bs may be easier for certain types of overseas employees uh, if you've identified those folks as potentially being transferred to the United States. Uh, we have H-4 EADs. So these are spouses of uh, H-1B workers. The H-1B workers are typically uh, deep into the green card process, uh, and these H-4 employment authorization documents are likely to be eliminated by the, this uh, administration. There's litigation around that, uh, but we expect sometime in 2020 a rule will be proposed to get rid of those EADs. It's not entirely clear that those EADs will go away right away, 
but uh, again, it is a lottery and you have to think about the fact that multiple filings may be necessary before a particular person is selected in that lottery. And that does mean uh, that uh, you want to think about filing for any H-4 EAD holders uh, this year if they're working for you in a job that also qualifies for H-1B. Uh, the final uh, group that you want to think about are uh, folks who have uh, DACA status, uh, folks who have temporary protected status, some of these other long-term temporary uh, visa uh, types. <clears throat> these are not necessarily visas. They are programs that allow people to remain in the United States even though they were never given a visa before. Um, these programs, again, are, have been under uh, scrutiny by the government. Uh, it may be challenging to get people in those programs uh, to convert from being on one of those humanitarian programs into H-1B. Uh, however, uh, you should certainly review those particular situations uh, and if there is a way that the employee can be helped by having an H-1B petition filed for them, uh, we would, we would you know, advise that it's a, it's a good idea to do so. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, prior cases where you've had problems with the age, prior denials of an H-1B petition, uh, prior uh, year H-1 uh, uh, cases that did not get selected in the lottery, those are uh, going to be things that you want to take a look at uh, refiling and re-registering in this year's lottery. So uh, we'll wrap up the presentation part of this with uh, our sort of uh, top strategic advice uh, points. Uh, Michelle, do you want to go, th uh, go through your, your top getting ready? Sure. Thanks, Bill. And um, there's one other actually category of people I think we um, may have overlooked on the slide that I just want to quickly mention is if we're concerned about L1s and L1, um, both L1A and L1B, um, other employers are also going to be concerned about them. And so if their spouse is working for you on an L2 EAD, and you um, may want to consider um, transferring them over to an H-1B as well. The reason being, if, if something happened to the spouse's employment or their status changed, they might not, that spouse might not have work authorization for you anymore. So that's just one other group um, you may want to consider looking at as well. Okay. Um, okay. So now on to um, strategic advice about um, what to do um, next. So, you know, one of the things we talked about was those RFEs and the specialty occupation questions. Um, you know, one of the things we've done last year and we're going to do again this year is, you know, we're going to request a lot of information up front from you as the employer. This might be um, about the job description. It might be asking for a percentage of time or additional duties, um, asking for a lot more detail about the complexity of the job, maybe what amount of time the people are spending on that. Um, because we would anticipate those RFEs, but also to make sure we're choosing that best prevailing wage category that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, something that has happened in prior years is we get a job description, it might be a more generic job description, and then when the RFE comes in, the manager actually says, well, my person's not doing that one duty or that other duty. They're doing these other things that, you know, weren't in the generic job description. So, you know, we're asking for a lot of detail and a lot of information up front. We're not doing it to, to bother you guys or to be annoying. We're really just doing it to make sure we prepare the best case um, going forward. Um, and as part of that, you know, it's all kind of tied into anticipating those RFEs. Um, we might need information about similar workers or looking at other job postings, whether it's for your company or for similar situated companies, to make sure that that bachelor's degree in a specific field is the standard requirement and the industry requirement. But with anticipating the RFEs, 
Um, I know um, uh, Bill's going to talk a little bit about the timing of cap gap, but we also want to note that the H-1B cap cases can take a very long time. So, um, you know, if, especially if somebody's, um, you know, it's not it's not as quick. You might not be able to premium process. Um, and so just things to think about is that, you know, that process might, might take a long time before we ha have a decision. If it goes into the regular lottery process, it might be a while before we even know if it's selected. So just, um, you know, keep in keep in mind that that processing time is, is rather long. Um, I will say I got my very last H-1B cap approval today <laughs> um, from last year. So, you know, just in time to start working on, on these cap cases for the next year. Great. So I uh, would say that, uh, you know, really uh, setting expectations with managers is uh, another key thing you want to be doing. Uh, you want to make sure that you're uh, speaking with the managers about what's involved in the h one process, about the realistic chances for their person being selected. Um, every year I, I have at least one conversation with a manager who says, what do you mean it's a lottery? It's really a lottery? That's how we pick visas? And we have to explain. Yes, that's actually how we pick visas, not not based on quality or quantity or who the employer is or what the job is, uh, just based on a lottery. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, you also have to explain the timing involved. Uh, and if there are going to be any gaps in work authorization or there are at least possibilities of gaps in work authorization, managers need to know that so they can be planning their workflow accordingly. They can be planning for a time when the employee may uh, need to be disconnected uh, uh, from the office and from the, the systems. Um, and also, I think you have to set expectations about the current environment of requests for additional information from the government, that it is likely that even routinely approved cases are going to have RFEs issued uh, on them, and uh, you know that, that there may even be denials in cases. Uh, so. Uh, the good news is we haven't seen a whole lot of new theories uh, from the government about uh, why cases should be denied. Uh, the bad news is they haven't stopped using the old theories. Uh, <laughs> so we get a lot of the same RFEs that we've seen before, and we give them a lot of the same kinds of answers that we've wound up developing over the last couple of years. Uh, Elise, do you have any uh, pro tips? Yeah, I, I really think um, with this new registration process, it's more important than ever for employers to think about backup plans. Um, over the last several years, um, according to the lottery statistics, there was about a one in two chance of being selected if you had a UF master's or higher degree, and about a one in three chance of being selected if you didn't have that UF degree. We, quite frankly, don't know what's going to happen this year. Our guess is that with the $10 registration fee, there will be many, many, many more registrations filed. Um, so it may be much more difficult to get that H-1B selected in the lottery. Um, so strategic long-term planning is all the more important, as well as considering some other potential visa categories that may be more document-intensive. Um, perhaps the O-1 extraordinary ability alien cases, um, perhaps transferring the employee abroad for a year um, if they do not ultimately get selected in the H-1B lottery. But what we will be doing with clients is really doing some long-term planning and making sure that um, we plan appropriate visa categories for work authorization in the U.S. Um, 
That's great. Thank you, Elise. And one thing I do want to mention, which I'm sure is going to be a question that comes in, um, I just want to make clear, the pre-registration system is not available yet to um, us. So we're six weeks out from being able to use it, um, but we can't yet access it um, to log in and create the registrations um, and start preparing things. So that will all open up hopefully by March 1st. So that is something to just keep in mind, um, which is also part of our concern that um, we're, we're getting up close to that deadline and, and the system is not yet available. Great. So that ends the formal part of the presentation. Thank you all for uh, typing your questions into the question box. We have several here. Please do continue to type questions here as we answer a few of the ones that we have out here. Uh, but we will jump right into questions and answers. We have several, but uh, as I said, feel free to add them. So Elise, we'll start uh, with you. Does a sponsoring employee, uh, sorry, does a sponsoring employer have to submit a job title, a job description, a number of weekly hours, along with their registration request? Based upon the information that we have now, that information does not have to be submitted as part of the registration. The government released um, initial um, slides and screenshots of the process for the pre-registration, and the information is, at least at this point, very basic in terms of name, company information, name of employer, in terms of beneficiary, it's going to require legal name, gender, it, we're going to have to answer up front whether or not the master's cap is being selected, date of birth, information, citizenship, and the like. Um, I guess there's one proviso here is that these slides were initial slides. The government has said that um, they will be issuing additional guidance um, and that will be forthcoming. I would certainly hope that that kind of higher detail information is not required in the registration and I don't think it's contemplated, but we are still waiting for additional guidance from USCIS as to the final mechanics for the registration process. Okay, uh, Michelle, uh, can an employee, so we, we talk, covered the fact that an employer can only file one registration for one employee, but can an employee have more than one employer submit a registration for them? Yes, absolutely. So um, an, a beneficiary or um, of an H-1B or an employee can seek out multiple offers of employment and have um, each of those employers submit a pre-registration, and even ultimately a, a full H-1B petition on behalf of that person. Um, so that's, that is acceptable under the regulations. And uh, another question just popped in on that same topic. Does that improve the employee's chance of being selected in the lottery? And the answer is they get to flip two coins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes, uh, in fact, uh, there's some complicated math in terms of how much that does, but it, it does in fact improve your chances because you know if you're uh, uh, if you're if you're buying a lottery ticket, it's better to buy two than one. Yeah, I would just caution that they have to actually be two different employers. Um, so just make sure that you're not saying you know the DBA name is the other employer or something like that. They have to be completely separate employers. Sure. Elise, uh, does the employee have to be physically present in the United States at the time of the H-1B registration? Absolutely not. Um, it, there's no requirement for the employee to be physically in the U.S. And in fact, we're considering H-1Bs for many individuals who are outside the United States. 
So in other words, it's just like the H-1B filing process in that respect. It is, it is sort of prospective. It says, as of October 1st, we'd like this person to be able to have an H-1B or come to the U.S. Absolutely. Correct. Um, at least do we know how soon after March 20th the employers are going to be notified? I wish we had um, an exact date in terms of when the government will notify um, the individuals. What we have is from the Federal Register Notice where the USCIS stated that it intends to notify registration registrants um, from the initial registration period no later than March 31st, 2020. So that's what we have at this point. Okay. Uh, there was a clarifying question. Did you say that the lottery is going to go back to first selecting from the regular cap and then uh, adding any master's degree people and doing a second lottery for the master's cap? That's the way it was for many, many years. Uh, no, that regulation is not going to change. We said at the beginning the version from last year where they first ran a lottery among all the master's degree holders and then are going to run a lottery among all the rest of the people who weren't selected, including any master's degree holders who weren't selected. Uh, this newer version of the regulation is the one that continues to apply um, for this year's lottery. So uh, it, it, you will have a slightly better chance uh, than in prior years, prior to last year, of being selected if you have a U.S. granted master's degree. Uh, Elise, let me ask you a question that's here. If you have a person who was an L1B for five years or a uh, L1A for seven years, uh, and the, the, do they have to go back home for a full year in order to take advantage of an H1B? Yeah, that's a great question. So the L1B has a maximum of five years. The L1A has a maximum of seven years. Um, those maximums are also counted against the H1B maximum of six years. So the numbers are interchangeable. So if someone already has um, a full six years, for example, in L status as an L1A, they no longer have any time left for that H1B. There may, however, be other things that we would want to look at. So for example, we can recapture any period of 24 hours outside the United States. So even though they may have held an, H, uh, an L1 visa for many years, what if they have spent significant periods outside the United States? We may still be able to file that H1B. So we would look very closely at the amount of time spent in the U.S. Yeah, and of course the other thing is if they have the permanent residence process started, right. there may very well be ways that you could get an H where you couldn't get an L because you can get the H beyond the six years. I think this is right. a good advertisement for early planning on these things. Anyone who had already completed five years as an L or seven years as an L1A would have to wait outside for a full year right. uh, because they would have completed the maximum time. But if they only spend, you know, four years and right. 11 months in the U.S. as an L1B, we could, we could switch them to an H1B. Right. And if they already have, and, and this I think is going to be very critical for a lot of our multinational managers that are facing backlogs now, if they have an approved I-140 as a multinational manager and they are subject to backlogs, um, perhaps we may be able to get them that H1B as well. 
So that's something to consider as well as recapture and where they are in the green card process. All right, uh, we have just a couple questions left. Michelle, uh, is it better to file right away on March 1st? Uh, is any time before March 20th okay? Is there, what, what do you anticipate in terms of sort of when in that registration people, period that employers should file? Great question. So the government has assured us that we have the full period from March 1st to March 20th to submit those pre-registrations. So there is no reason to go ahead and submit all of them on March 1st. Well, would like to obviously have the people identified and all the information we need to prepare the pre-registrations by, you know, very quickly after the, the system opens up on March 1st. There's no reason that we need to rush the submission. Um, we would have that full 20-day period. All right. There are several questions around filing for TPS, uh, DACA holder applicants. Um, they all relate to, hey, wait a minute, how do you get a DACA holder or TPS holder into H-1B status? Uh, the short answer is, it's complicated. Uh, we definitely want to talk through both the pros and the cons of how that might happen. And we also need to analyze every single case specifically. There may be DACA applicants who could easily uh, get an H-1B visa, where another DACA applicant might not be able to easily get an H-1B. Um, so those are, we are, we would like to flag those and we'd like you to bring those to our attention, but we would do some deep analysis as far as whether the end game of getting that person an H-1B uh, is even possible. Um, so, so some will, not everyone will. Um, Another question, speaking of uh, folks residing outside the United States, uh, if someone doesn't have OPT, does that mean they can't start working until October 1st, Elise? Absolutely. Unless they have some other uh, work authorization, if the case is uh, selected in the registration, um, the earliest possible that they would be able to work under an H-1B for this fiscal year is October 1. But just as Michelle stated, um, there's no guarantee that the H-1B will even be approved prior to October 1. It's not clear this year whether or not the government will allow us, once we can file the H-1B cases, whether or not the government will, in fact, allow premium processing for cases. If they do allow premium processing, uh, the likelihood is we will be able to have October 1 start dates. Um, but there is no start under a new H-1B unless there's some other work authorization prior to October 1. Great. And so uh, uh, there's a great wrap-up question here at the end. Uh, how will USCIS handle the waiting list for the filing of H-1B applications? So, uh, for example, if an employer uh, is placed in the H-1B lottery, uh, they get denied, do they go to the next person on the registration? So let me just summarize uh, a couple of uh, things about that. So the first thing is that the government selects through the lottery enough petitions to uh, reflect the fact that a certain number of those petitions are going to be denied. So the government doesn't ever tell us exactly how many they select, but they do select slightly more than the 85,000 petitions that are allowed under the statute. Uh, with the theory that there is a certain amount of shrinkage that happens because the employee decides not to come to the U.S. or the employee decides not to come to that employer or uh, the employer uh, or the petition gets denied, uh, et cetera. So uh, it, theoretically, if they run the lottery, they've already accounted for those kind of extra cases. Now, there is a remote possibility, and I think this is a vanishingly small chance, 
that the number of petitions, the number of registrations will be lower than 85,000. Um, I think what's much more likely is that instead of the almost 200,000 petitions we've seen in prior years, we will see at least 300 to 500,000 petition registrations this year. Uh, but if I'm wrong about that, uh, if everyone decides that uh, H-1B is just not a program they want to participate in anymore uh, and, and no one submits registrations, uh, the registration regulation does have a process that basically says, uh, first off, we will accept all of these electronic pre-registrations. If there are more than the 85,000, we will run a lottery. If there are fewer, we will notify everybody that they were selected. Uh, we will also select enough that we anticipate using all of the available visa numbers. If we're wrong and we don't use all of the available visa numbers, we will rerun a lottery on the cases we already have. And if even that isn't enough, we will reopen the registration period uh, so that employers can use up all the visas. I don't anticipate either of those things happening, but they are written into the regulations as, as possible outcomes uh, for this. All right. Um, so the, uh, the and a, one final good clarifying question: If a case is selected in the lottery, is it correct that it is specific to the beneficiary, and the employer cannot substitute a beneficiary? That is absolutely correct. You are giving the name of the registered employee. That employee can have an H-1B petition filed on their behalf. There is no substitution of beneficiaries uh, by employers. Uh, an employer, of course, if they have multiple employees available, perhaps uh, employed by a subsidiary in another country, they could, of course, file multiple uh, petitions for multiple employees if they sort of don't care which one of those employees winds up coming to the U.S. as long as at least one of them does. Uh, and, in fact, that's one of the reasons we anticipate uh, large overseas employers will take advantage of this to file many petitions on behalf of similarly qualified workers uh, in their home country. So that has been our uh, wrap-up of this year's H-1B CAF filing season and the new H-1B electronic registration requirement. I'd like to thank everybody for attending today. Hope that you found the information useful. If you have any additional questions, please feel free to reach out to any of the speakers. Our contact information is up here on the screen. We will be posting a, a recording of this webinar. Uh, it will be emailed to everyone who registered for the webinar, whether they joined us today or not. It will also be available on our website and, as uh, mentioned previously, as a special episode of our podcast. We do regularly publish blogs, articles, news alerts to our updates and on social media. So please feel free to sign up for the email lists at classicallaw.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, your uh, preferred social media outlet, and, of course, listen to our podcast. So, Thank you very much for joining us today, and that's an end of the webinar.